This is Darker Days Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by... Let's start with Chig. How's it going, Chig? Pretty good, Mike. How you doing? Oh, not bad. Not bad. Just chipper, in fact. It's been a while since we had an episode. And of course, one of the driving forces behind this episode and all of Darker Days is Chris. How's it going, Chris? Uh, hey, yeah. Um, it's good. Been doing various different things. Um, yeah. You know, trying to get some stuff painted, got some wargaming scenery, trying to get some wargaming going, and obviously finished uh, writing my first project for uh, for Fading Suns, and hopefully be writing something some more soon. Um, yeah, so otherwise, pretty cool. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, what's uh, what kind of gaming has been going on, Chig? Have you been playing your uh, Rocket Age game a little bit? Unfortunately, no. Um, due to illnesses and injuries, we've been my group has been unable to meet for the past couple of weeks. So, hopefully, we're going to turn that around tonight. All right. Um, I have actually uh, started playing a, a minis game, uh, Malifaux, a little skirmish game. Ooh. So, I'm, I might bug uh, Chris about some uh, mini painting help later. <laughs> okay. What? Yeah, Chick, I'm not good enough for you. <laughs> Well, I've already bugged you for help, so I, I'd like to get a second or third or fifteenth opinion. You know. Oh, okay, fair enough. Fair my enough. my my immediate advice, chick, is if you're playing Malifaux and you want mm-hmm. some scenery, uh, I do. Start trawling, start trawling your uh, your local gaming stores and trying to find the uh, Terra Clips set because th- that stuff works. It's awesome. Um, oh, they have scenery for, for the little clicky games. Um, I had no idea. So for for Malifaux, mm-hmm. um, Weird Miniatures paired up with a company called uh, oh, World Works Games, and they make they make printable scenery, but they also made uh, a set uh, six bot sets of scenery called Terraclips, and they have the kind of like a uh, hidden grid on the scenery, so it's good for role play for grid based stuff. But um, the way you can construct it and it clips together, it's great. And one of the sets which everyone wants and I've now got two sets of and it's it's really rare now because they don't make it anymore is the um the buildings of Malifaux so it's kind of like a I would say Tudor-esque kind of buildings and you can make any size of buildings with it and you know you only have to dump down like uh, like uh, uh, the box set I think if you've got enough clips and, and a box set of it it makes um you can make about four good-sized buildings, or you can make one huge kind of like, you know, small manor house. Holy and you can dump crap. That on the... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I, so I, if... just, I just Googled it. I'm looking at it. Wow. I've so never I've... even heard of this stuff before. Yeah, so I've got two sets of the buildings. So you can imagine how big we could that I could make something if I really wanted to. Um, I've got the streets of Malifaux. So if you have that and a building set combined together it'll cover a three by three area with uh decent sized buildings and walkways and and shit like that um what else have i got um and i've also got the what's um what's uh vault of ruin so that gives you some kind of more kind of you know dungeon decrepit looking dungeons with 
partially destroyed walls. And those mm -hmm. are good if you want for, for like, you know, if Mike and I, for like Mike or um, myself, when we play like, say something like War Machine, it's good to have some walls that you can lay behind, but also your men can see over and shoot and all that crap. And then the, the other set I've got is called Prison of the Forsaken. So also in some of these sets, especially in the Dungeon Rise set, you get the little card of props. Like they make like chairs or tables or beds. What? So in Prison of the Forsaken, the beds, if you turn over the bed section, it can either be a bed or it can be a torture table. <laughs> so you can really set up some really cool scenery. Um, there's also like the sewers. There's also another one called uh, Dungeon Essentials, which I really should get my own copy. But one of my, uh, one of my gaming group bought that and I've got it at my place for when we play uh, Iron Kingdoms because it's got cool stuff in it like a, like some of the props are like uh, fireplaces and bookcases and stuff like that so you can really festoon um, you know a mini based uh, RPG with some cool scenery elements for like set pieces where you want it just to look interesting for a fight I don't use it all the time. I think you know you can get too caught up in it. In it, but also it's really good for wargaming. Uh, also, in the, the vaults of ruin one, you get like uh, some of the props are like allow you to make tombs, so you can have like mm -hmm. like. So if you look on the darker days blog spot, pimping that out, obviously, <laughs> Mike, didn't I? Put, I've put like loads of gaming stuff up there for mini miniatures because obviously you know. You may as well show pictures of these stuff. And there's pictures of when we were when my group was playing through part one of the Witchfire trilogy, and it's the fight outside the cathedral. And all that is Terraclips. So is yeah, insane. if you can find it, people out there, get it, because it ain't being made anymore. It will never be made anymore. Buy it, and it's worth the money. Um, the only thing coming up which potentially will be a good replacement for it if you can't get hold of it, is Battle Systems. So I don't know if anyone's seen this. Battle System, again, is a card-based clip-together scenery. They've done a sci-fi set via Kickstarter. So it's really good for, like, say, um, to have actual scenery for, say, Space Hulk or, or games like that, or if you just want to play kind of like a sci-fi game and actually have corridors and so forth. But they're doing... Uh, they're already working up their designs for the fantasy-based version of it. Yeah, so it's really cool. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. And see, that's why I asked. Yeah. Uh, so, Mike, what have you been doing gaming-wise? Uh, you know, I ran, like, Cthulhu Tech uh, a couple weeks oh, back. Oh, of course, yes. That's right, which uh, <laughs> both of you were in, along with uh, Andrew and Aaron. So that was a pretty good time. Uh, definitely good to uh, explore that system a little bit more um yeah interesting it wasn't it wasn't my best game but it seems like you guys had a pretty decent time i enjoyed myself chick i gave you like the best character ever well i mean <laughs> that's it that is true yeah. so just to inform everyone uh chick was effectively playing a pokemon master um he was a sorcerer with a little little fetch dudes who were running around uh causing mischief and uh and whatnot and also, he was, uh, you know, his kind of usual sleazy douchebag kind of character. So, pretty much perfect. Character. Character only. So, that's what's uh, been going on with me. And then, like, uh, some Vampire the Eternal Struggle, that sort of stuff. Uh, Chris, how about yourself? What, uh, what's been going on over in Germany? Um, uh, we've, we're 
hopefully going to get back into playing some Iron Kingdoms maybe maybe next weekend, maybe the weekend after that, I think. So I'm finishing my conversion of Witchfire Trilogy from D20 to um, the newer Iron Kingdom setting. Um, otherwise, uh, I need to play some, do some wargaming, so I recently got... Um, some new scenery so I've now got some gaming ta- modular uh, train boards from a company called Eslo Scenery they do some really good stuff so it now means I actually have a 4x4 gaming table which if you're playing War Machine is useful um, I also got some scenery from uh, Micro Art Studios so this is some laser cut uh, MDF and you put it together, it's for... I don't know if you've seen this skirmish game before called Volsung. Nope. And uh, so that's kind of like a steampunk kind of uh, game, kind of steampunk western. Uh, and, you know, it paints really well. It looks really good. It was a bit of a pain to put together at times because obviously, you know, you use a bit of PVA glue and, you know, you need to jam some bits together. Um, but it's the first type of scenery I've put together like that. So I think... Um, It'll be good. They also do some really good other bits uh, from that set. So again, uh, check for your um, for your uh, for your gaming. Uh, maybe look at that as well. Um, again, it kind of allows you to make modular walls and walkways and so forth. Oh, and I'm painting some Batman miniatures right now. So for the Batman miniatures game for my mate. So I've finished painting the Joker and finished off his goons, and then I've got. Commissioner Gordon and some uh, a SWAT team and some police officers to do up. Um, yeah. And that's pretty much it, other than... Um, is there any other gaming I want to get up to? Um, other than maybe planning a Hangout game for Fading Suns at some point soon. All right, sounds good, sounds good. So with that gaming update, I think it's time to move over to... Onyx Path News and White Wolf News. I guess we're going to start the news with a bit of a sad note. So, for many years, uh, about eight years, I believe, uh, the World of Darkness MMO has been worked on. Um, but unfortunately, uh, as of late or early April, uh, they've officially canceled the uh, WAD online game. So uh, that's that's done. And uh, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people uh, at CCP in Atlanta have uh, you know gone on to do other things because they were they were laid off. So uh, wish them you know best of luck and all that. Uh, and it's really unfortunate that so much you know time and effort has gone into this, and uh, it's all pretty much. You know, for not. Uh, maybe we'll mm. see something in the future. Uh, maybe they'll be able to use some of the assets that they developed for maybe a single-player game or something like that. But that's all pretty much just uh, you know speculation at this point. So um, it's pretty unfortunate. And uh, again, you know, wish everyone the best uh, as they move on to other things. So, any other thoughts and opinions, guys, on that? I think it's it's hard because obviously everyone has a lot of people. I think maybe less informed people have an opinion of how much time and effort's been put on this game. But, you know, um, various other games, you know, you don't hear about until they're very close to some sort of alpha or beta. So I think the time frame 
in which the game has been worked on. Yeah, I think it got announced eight years ago, but I would say the active, real work on the game has only been for, what, the last five or six years. Um, I think while there's a lot of talk about, oh, well, you could just do a Kickstarter for it and you could finish it off, or they should definitely finish it off, is that you know, you get to a point where while they have invested a lot of money in there, into the game, I think, was it something like $50 million? There's, there's a cutoff point which, you know, you've got to think either you, you, where you've got to assess whether you can keep investing and you will get it to completion and get and start getting that money back or you're not going to get to it. And it's a shame because from the visuals uh, in the leaked manual and how they were describing it, um, you know, they really did have some some nice things in place. Um, I think it was just a case of it's a very hard intellectual property to bring to the MMO world and do it justice because you know it could have easily you know if you were everyone's made made you know a World of Warcraft kind of knockoff and that type of gaming is dying off in some respects um, and it's not you know bringing back money to companies that are doing that so you know CCP was right to aim high and maybe right now it was too high for what they had they might come back to it and there's nothing there's no reason why they can't come back to it when they have maybe more money to invest or they've developed other technologies by that point or they've got some other group that wants to invest with them but they've got to do what's right right now which is also they've got to think about even their other employees you know you can't be selfish about you can't just focus on one thing at the expense of everyone else's job so you know it's a tough decision yep indeed indeed jake you got anything it's sad to see it go, but I mean, they like like Chris said, you know, they have to do what's best for for them as a company as a whole. So, I mean, I understand why they did it, but yeah, it's still kind of a bummer. Indeed, but I think there is kind of a silver lining to all this, and that's the fact that you know the licenses for uh, the role playing games and other aspects of the World of Darkness property have been dispersed. Uh, you know, prior to all this going down, so we already have Onyx Path and uh, Midnight Studios in place. Uh, doing a lot of good work so uh we could be happy to see at the uh you know games we uh, really enjoy are just going to continue to grow that's another thing which is interesting because obviously people have commented about uh, about that and worried about it, about you know the 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 future of those ips but you know ccp can happily sit on that ip until they're in a position to reassess how they use it because role-play gaming is perhaps the easiest media in which to develop IP. You know, the, the classic World of Darkness is, is no, in no way dead anymore. It's evolving in a, in a way that's... It's evolving in a way that's more similar to the way that New World of Darkness evolves now, you know, as in, in their kind of breaching out of the established metaplot of, you know, ages past. So they're now exploring outside of that boundary, but still within the world of Vampire the Masquerade. So, you know, it, it's great. I mean, CCP's going to be bring, uh, 
Onyx Path Publishing is going to be bringing out another World of Darkness game soon. Um, you know, it's been announced that they're working on something. We have no idea what it is. Everyone's making jokes what it is. But for CCP, that's great because this world is still active. It's still being developed. There are still going to be fans there. And we're going to be here when maybe they look at bringing World of Darkness to, an, uh, to the MMO media again. So, you know, I'm sure they're just going to sit on it until they find the right deal. Yeah, probably, Chris. I mean, <clears throat> uh, we've seen this in the past with uh, what happened with FASA, essentially. Uh, they yeah. became an intellectual property holder uh, in many ways. They stopped producing games, and they sold off a lot of the electronic rights to uh, uh, Microsoft for Crimson Skies, Shadowrun, and uh, MechWarrior slash Battletech. Yeah. So, you know, we've seen over time, you know, those games, <clears throat> you know, the tabletop games survived with uh, licenses, you know, going out there. And then we've seen everything come back, you know, round circle. So they're producing video games again with Mecha Warrior Online, Shadowrun Returns, and also a Shadowrun Online game. So there's definitely a lot going on uh, in that respect uh, with those properties. So you never know. In five years, might see another MMO or might see uh, some other types of games coming out. Yeah, I, I would be shocked if we didn't eventually have another world of darkness computer game of some sort mm. yeah definitely definitely so yep uh in other news uh, onyx path was putting out quite a bit, quite a few different products uh necropolis dc is out for uh kickstarter backers uh we've got more condition cards storyteller screens and a lot of other stuff and i think we'll talk about those a little bit more uh in a future episode of course and with that let's move on over to the classic world of darkness segment Classic World of Darkness. All right, Chig. Um, we said we were going to do this. And <laughs> the time has finally come. Yeah, we've kind of been uh, puttering around, dragging our feet to get to this, but uh, yeah. I'm just going to sit back and listen. <laughs> Indeed. I think it's, it's, it's tough, Chig, because you know we came into this, this book with such high expectations. You know, we really wanted to see where they were going to take this, and I'm not going to say it's a bad book, because it definitely, it a... it's definitely technically written very well. There's some very strong ideas in there, but it's really, it's not what we anticipated. Yeah, they, they did set the bar rather high for this one, and I think maybe it was just a little too high for them to clear. Or maybe I set the bar too high for them based on the, the books that came out ahead of uh, convention book, Void Engineers Revised. That's right. That's right. So, convention book Void Engineer is it's it's not. Oh damn! How do I want to put this? See, this is why this is why we put off this review for so long, Chig. There's so many so many emotions I, I going on with this source. I book. understand. It it's not the best of the revised uh, convention books. I will go ahead and start out by saying that. In fact, um, of the revised convention books, it is poss- It is definitely my least favorite. Yeah, I would inf- unfortunately concur with that. Um, but, you know, it's it's so tough because these are the same writers that gave us the other convention books, you know, Progenitors, Syndicate, and New World Order, which have all been great. And I, I just, I don't know what happened with this one. Um, again, it's, it's not a bad book. There's some great stuff in here. Uh, for example... 
This probably has the most clearly defined uh, discussion of the Voynich-Engineers cosmology for the solar system and, um, and the theories regarding that uh, that we've seen before. Oh, yeah. The, the cosmology chapter alone is amazing. Exactly. And, and explaining the difference between this type of umbra and that type of umbra is just, it, it's, it's been done before, but never this, this well. Exactly, exactly. And the history section is a very good overview, which I found to be a lot more interesting than, uh, than many other you know, history chapters that you'll find in, uh, in World of Darkness books, um, particularly because you know, it's different uh, looks at exploration and kind of like human aspirations were, were just uh, very strong and uh, I feel resonated with the entire you know, Void Engineer's concept. Indeed, I, I, I agree. It, um, the history section, um, unlike other revised convention books, doesn't just cover the last 10 or 15 years. It, it's not just, well, we started a million years ago at the dawn of civilization and then some stuff happened and here's a really detailed look at the last decade. Um, it, it goes into into not not super fine detail. I mean, it's not it's just a regular size book, but it doesn't uh, ignore the uh, history. Absolutely. And another great thing about this book is that it's very diverse in uh, how it looks at uh, both genders and, and other cultures, uh, particularly, you know, the shifts in uh, where the void engineers are recruiting nowadays, uh, less from, say, you know, flyboy uh, uh, Air Force guys and more looking at, you know, Chinese scientists, uh, looking at people in Africa and that sort of thing, which is really just very interesting. Yeah, agreed uh, there as well, yeah. But... There's that one, a big but. that one primary conceit about this whole book that we really disagree with, isn't there, Chig? The fact that the Void Engineers, they almost feel like they're less scientists now and more, they're, they're more militarized. Uh, in the aftermath of the uh, Avatar Storm, losing you know, swaths of, uh, of personnel, losing much of their, uh, their you know, space navy, uh, they've become militarized, almost akin to you know, Starship Troopers uh, in some ways. Uh, and I'm more referring to the 2000, or no, sorry, like 1998 Paul Verhoeven film as opposed to the actual Robert Heinlein novel. Right. It's kind of out of left field. The, 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 uh, the backstory being, hey, we lost all of our spaceships, so now we're all space marines. I, I really don't see the connection between cause and effect there. Indeed, indeed. And another strange thing is that, um, you know, despite the void engineers becoming more militarized and, and trying to, uh, in, in this canonical context, uh, create a more, more defined uh, convention for themselves, that whole idea that was purported in uh, Iteration X, Syndicate, and all these other convention books, that the void engineers might actually leave the technocratic union is just completely invalidated in the first two pages of the source book, saying that the Void Engineers will never leave. Absolutely not. That would never happen. And I feel that that's really, it's sort of a, a whitewashing of the situation. You know, the Void Engineers have suffered greatly, and they're, um, as I would view it in the context of Mage the Ascension, looking at different uh, conventions and how they treat the Void Engineers, they're really kind of getting the uh, shit end of the stick, really. Yeah, um, it's been around since the uh, 
technocrats were not just the monolithic bad guys uh, that if any group was ever going to leave, it would be the Void Engineers. And like you said, in the first three or four pages, it says, oh, no, Void Engineers would never, ever leave the technocratic union. Maybe this is just their their internal dialogue between the characters in the Void uh, Engineers you know, the, the grizzled veteran telling the new guy, hey, no, 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 we need, we need the backing. We need them as much as, they need, as much as they need us. But to just come right out and say, hey, no, they would never, ever leave kind of invalidates decades of uh, plot and possibility. Yeah, it really does. I feel that it's really just a missed opportunity because they could have gone into these different, you know, fractious factions of the Void Engineers um, and, and look at how they're interacting uh, some of them might want to leave some of them more traditional and want to stick with the technocracy. And there could be a lot of very interesting stories just within the convention itself that you could tell um, about that one story seed. So, yeah, I feel like it's really just a, a missed opportunity. Well, the World of Darkness writers kind of have a, a history of, of this whole monolithic group thing. Uh, if we look at... Uh, vampire when all of the gangrel decide the you know the clan of loners who don't interact with anybody decided as a a group somehow to leave the camarilla or when the uh, stargazers left the um the uh werewolf the heck's their court system called i forget when these large groups of individualists decided as a as a group to up and leave or in this case to stick around it kind of invalidates the uh, the characteristics of that group. Mm, yeah, I definitely agree. Now, there is some you know reasoning put into place for the uh, Void Engineers becoming this sort of militarized faction, and that is this you know organization or, or entity called Threat Null. The book's pretty vague about it for the first fifty pages, but as you get uh, further into it. And this is going to be a bit of a spoiler, but I think our, our listeners can handle it. Um, essentially, what happened was that the Avatar Storm, when it occurred, uh, turned all the technocrats in control and, you know, the, the deep umbra into spirits. And these guys are kind of uh, coming back and they're attacking the uh, technocracy, particularly the board engineers. Um, and they're this sort of faceless uh, antagonist, kind of like how the technocracy was in, you know, the old first edition mage. Can I just say, that's kind of interesting, because, I mean, you know you were saying you complained that the Void Engineers were kind of militarized. Is that maybe more of a reaction to the, this new threat they're now facing, as the Void Engineers have to reassess that they can't be just going out to the stars, the Umbra, wherever the hell, in their spaceships? And again, it's the way to focus the Void Engineers in a more local way is kind of a... It makes them a bit, well, maybe it makes them a bit more Ghostbusters in that sense, but, you know, or, you know, stopping the creatures of the Outer Dark, which happen to be, you know, technocracy who've become weird. Well, Chig and I have alien some, some good ideas about Ghostbuster uh, void <laughs> engineers, but we'll get into that later. Okay, cool. Um, well, it just seems to me that, you know, Threatnal, as it stands, they're a faceless and pretty weak villain, and the World of Darkness usually tries to take steps to have, you know, deep and interesting antagonists. So in, in that respect, I, I just don't really like Threatnal. This is the first time that they are introduced to us um, in the meta plot. And it is, a, a, you know, 
it's just one source book and there's only uh, you know a couple pages really devoted to them so it may just be that you know they're newly introduced and it'll take a little while like most world of darkness things do uh, a couple source books later there'll be something really cool that um you know chick and i and others will really enjoy um the one interesting thing about them about threatnull is that they haven't found any void engineers amongst them any former void engineers which is a bit spooky i'm not really sure what purpose that's supposed to serve uh you know the the overall design of the antagonist but you know it is another story seed to explore uh at the very least so that's kind of cool yeah um like you i was not wowed and bl- my hair was not blown back by threatenol um it's a it's an interesting idea um the whole if you're in the umbra for too long you will become a spirit thing has always been around so it it even makes sense, you know, historically, but I don't, I don't know. It's like, like you said, there was a lot of buildup to, Ooh, who is this crazy new threat from beyond the stars? And then it turns out <gasps> the enemy was us all along. I mean, that's kind of, kind of lame. I don't know. I, I, I like, like you say though, maybe they'll, they'll do something amazing with it and I'll be blown away. Yeah, it could be. But, I mean, Chig, just your idea uh, that you mentioned offhand once that, you know what, maybe we're going to get to page 60 of the source book, and then Threatenal just doesn't even exist. You know, this military, <laughs> you know, this right-wing faction just completely made it up to, you yeah, know, that, prove uh, that they need funding from the rest of the technocratic union. It would be hilarious and awesome. <laughs> I, I thought that that was kind of where they were going at first, and then I got to it, and I was like, well, hmm, not, not so much, huh? Yeah, exactly. Again, it's not really that it's a bad idea. It's just we set the bar so high for this. And that's one of the things that just didn't pay off. And there's there's some other stuff in the source book. Um, it has some spaceship construction rules, which are uh, pretty cool on paper, but they don't add anything too mechanically interesting. It's just, you know, some basic dice pool rolls uh, and a very, you know, basic framework for uh, for designing capital ships and that sort of thing for the Void Engineers, which, uh, Chig, as you pointed out, it's a little superfluous. These ships really just travel at the speed of plot and that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's not something that your player characters are really going to have. I mean, you're unless you're playing, unless you're using the uh, the rules to play a, a Star Trek game, then I don't see your your average group of mage players having access to an interstellar starship. Yeah, exactly, and that's really one of the uh, the, the secondary effects of this book when you're looking at it, is that it doesn't do enough, I feel, to shift focus back to Earth. Because that's really what we've done with, uh, or what writers have done with Revised Mage and now with the, uh, you know, Mage 20th, is they're looking back at Earth, you know, the cradle of humanity, and that is where all the action's happening. You know, it's kind of interesting to go out into deep space and uh, maybe have some adventures, you know, battling against the uh, Nefandi of the Red Circle or something. Um, But that should only be a side plot which should directly affect uh, activities and plots and agendas that are all taking place back on Earth. And again, the, the source book doesn't do enough to, uh, you know, I know it's, I understand it's the Void Engineers and that they are uh, the space faction, but they can do a lot more than that. And I think that was another missed opportunity with the source book. Yeah, it, it tries, to, I think maybe it tries to go both ways at once and winds up, not doing either terribly well. It doesn't. It doesn't have a, a clear focus on whether it wants to be about 
among the stars void engineers or stuck on the mud ball engineers, you know? Yep, definitely, definitely. So I think that brings us to... Oh, wait, 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 wait. Sorry, before we go on, um, I want to say that the page of medals for the Void Engineers is probably the biggest waste of space I've seen in any White Wolf book. I would concur, yes. Uh, there there, is... there, there's no reason for this to be in this book. Yeah, yeah. And that was also uh, on the page after the propaganda poster for joining the Void Engineers army or whatever. Right. Yeah. Space Marines. Space Marines, <laughs> exactly. Yes, uh, I would concur with that uh, assertion, Chig. So I think this kind of brings us to, uh, you know, the point that, that Chig and I are at, where, you know, we got the source book, and we don't really agree with everything. Um, you know, we can't... I wouldn't I wouldn't really recommend people go running out to, uh, to get it, although there are some, definitely, some redeeming aspects to it. Um, but, Chig, I think we wanted to kind of just kind of go over some of our own ideas uh, regarding the Void Engineers, and really just a different way to take them. Um, should people be unsatisfied with, uh, you know, using space commandos in their games. So, what are the Void Engineers really about? Because they're not about space. They're about, you know, exploration and the aspirations of humanity. They're really, they're a technocratic convention that looks to the future more than any other. Um, And in some ways, because this noble pursuit of theirs, um, they really skirt the edges of the uh, technocratic timeline uh, in many ways. Yeah, while the other four conventions look to the future, uh, they look to the future of innovation and technology and things and development, um, the Void Engineers look to the future of humanity and where people are going, not just things and toys. And I think that sets them apart from the, the rest of the Union. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, this kind of this puts them in conflict a lot of times with the other conventions and the Technocratic Union as a whole. And uh, especially, you know, in the wake of the Avatar Storm, I would think, you know, they've lost much of their Navy. Um, dozens of ships are uh, lost in, in, you know, distant parts of the solar system. They've lost a lot of manpower, capital. And uh, a lot of knowledge, that's another important and key element, is that they've lost a lot of people that know the inner workings of of this cosmology that they've been developing. Um, Overall, I think that would not result in a a shift of focus to become more militarized and and try to rebuild that space program. Because, first off, they they have less people, they have less money in that case, and less funding from the rest of the technocratic union. And I think it would resonate very well with, uh, you know, modern day... Uh, uh, aspects of of space exploration, you know, uh, with how NASA has had so many funding uh, budget cuts and, and and funding changes, and how you know the reality of space travel is is looking less and less uh, doable. Really, uh, that the technocracy uh, would not allow the void engineers to spend all this extra money on on these capital warships and that sort of thing, uh, meaning that. What few ships the Void Engineers now build are smaller exploration vessels. Um, maybe they'd be doing some space mining in the uh, local area, local vicinity. But a lot of their aspirations as a convention have been cut short as a result of the uh, the Avatar Storm. 
Right. Um, they're not going out to Jupiter and fighting monsters in the, the big swirly red eye of Jupiter anymore. Uh, but there's still room in the local solar system for them to build, you know, a base at uh, the Lagrange points for uh, research and development or to uh, make some little tugboat type ships to go from here to there within the local system. Uh, scaling it down and scaling it back in the space exploration side of things makes sense both in universe and, you know, to reflect real life. So, Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing is that uh, the Void Engineers, they are definitely about, you know, exploration, uh, humanity, and, and the future. So they also want to definitely protect humanity. Um, and one of the best ways to do this is not by, you know, exploring, you know, some asteroid belt off of, off of Pluto, which is so f distant and far away, but it might actually be best to uh, help shore up defenses and stabilize Earth itself, which kind of brings in a lot of interesting ideas for how research and manpower has shifted within the Void Engineers. So really, uh, the way I see it, there's three core tiers of gameplay uh, that would work perfectly for the Void Engineers. Uh, the highest tier is definitely that sort of localized space travel, um, exploring those kind of uh, lunar, maybe Martian threats, um, maybe doing some stuff with, with space mining, which uh, I think can bring in a lot of very interesting um, horror stories itself when you look at um, some popular films such as Event Horizon or uh, Aliens, or really more Alien, the original. So that gives you a lot of options right there. The second tier, I'd say kind of the mid-tier, is looking a lot at um, research that the uh, Void Engineers are doing in probably the more distant parts of planet Earth, uh, maybe in volcanoes, uh, deep-sea research, kind of like the film The Abyss, polar research, like uh, The Thing. So there's a lot of very interesting horror themes that you can bring in that way, which I think will uh, definitely uh, enhance the overall look of the... Um, of the Void Engineers. And by placing these kind of extra research facilities and that sort of thing back on Earth, that gives them a lot more reason to play with the other conventions and see what kind of uh, interesting stories and perhaps conflicts come about with that. Because if you're doing deep sea research, for example, um, definitely the progenitors are going to want to uh, have their own personnel at those same facilities. Um, just to make things interesting as well, I, I would say a lot of these facilities might be, you know, abandoned previous research facilities from maybe like the 50s or the 60s that the te technocracy made, and they're now being uh, repersonnelled, um, given what's been going on. Sure, you know, sweep the mothballs out of that old sea uh, lab and toss the progenitors and the iterators down there. They can't get to uh, other dimensions anymore to do their crazy uh, magical science experiments, so we got to get them away from humanity where, one, the consensus would not allow that in the first place, and two, if anything blows up, it'll take out a city. So, you know, put them at the bottom of the ocean. Put them in, uh, in a, uh, a, a deep uh, crust lab somewhere deep within the, the bowels of the earth and uh, see what kind of fun and exciting creatures they can summon up down there. On the point with the whole Void Engineers being more based on Earth, the other thing is, and how that reflects um, you know, modern-day uh, scientific research, uh, you know, space research and everything, is if you look at a lot of the larger kind of discoveries 
going on right now. So whether you're looking at the Large Hadron Collider or various other kind of particle experiments, or or even to do with planetary uh, detection, all these things happen within our local space, you know, or even just on Earth. So I think another way to look at how you can play the void engineers is that a lot of the discoveries that they can make are about bringing something that's very distant down onto our world and i think that you can you can use that because maybe maybe they've got to the point where they can the real discoveries they can do don't require them to go flying off into the uh, distant void but the more important discoveries happen can actually still be done just on earth and in fact they're even greater ones because they're more dimensional in the sense of you know discoveries of how our our world is connected to other places and other energies and forces and so forth um i was going to say possibly another great idea along with mike when you said about uh, void engineers having bases like deep sea and so forth look at pacific rim maybe that means you can look at you know stories where you do go into into kind of crazy realms is because all the all the stuff you you require for that is all very earth-based as in it is just gateways and, and or fissures within our dimension the very fabric of our reality on earth yep yep absolutely i definitely agree um now for the uh kind of final street level tier of gameplay uh, i definitely my favorite level yeah definitely and this kind of speaks to how uh Chig and I, like some of the media that we enjoy and, and the kind of like heroes that we root for in a lot of these stories, uh, we're definitely looking at the uh, kind of downtrodden uh, hero. You know, he doesn't have much of a budget. You know, he's trying to get from one paycheck to paycheck. Um, but we're calling these guys kind of the cleaners. And essentially what they are is that they're these, uh, these individuals. Uh, you know, you can think of like Ghostbusters, Constantine, or maybe even the, the Super Mario Brothers movie, uh, where they go into these different situations and they have to seal up maybe abyssal uh, intrusions, that sort of thing, you know, from, from a Lozombra vampire, uh, clear out nests of were-rats uh, and other things which are affecting, uh, you know, different, not only, not only Earth itself, but other uh, dimensions, that sort of thing, you know, uh, intrusions into the Umbra, umbra the abyss, um, maybe even the dreaming if you could work in uh, changelings uh, into some situations. And these guys are pretty neat because, you know, it allows you to, uh, you know, work with a lot more of the, uh, you know, down and dirty kind of uh, technocratic individuals. You know, maybe the men in black or the, uh, uh, you know, action scientists of the uh, progenitors nowadays. I think it's just a really neat idea. Uh, and Chig, this is really kind of your, your brainstorm right here, your brainchild. So uh, maybe you could, you know, kind of tackle a little bit more. Well, it, it only makes sense that if you have, you know, incursions from the dark umbra, you know, ghosts, or if you have crazy spirits who are running around causing trouble from the middle umbra and the werewolves aren't in the phone book, then you have to have somebody who's ready to stand up and protect reality from the, these weird little monsters who are ready to eat people and lower property value. And, you know, the... Uh, the New World Order is busy with uh, traditionalists and other mages. So really the only people in the Technocratic Union who have the knowledge and the equipment and the ability 
to prevent uh, dimensional incursions of this nature are the Void Engineers. Absolutely, and absolutely. And one of the interesting things is that when you look at the technocracy, you know, they definitely, they do want to protect humanity, but just saving people's lives and that sort of thing, that's kind of maintenance. It doesn't really forward their, their overall agenda. It doesn't create new technology. So it stands to reason to me that really they're not, the Void Engineers are not going to be getting much funding for this, perhaps from the syndicate uh, and, and other conventions, because really this is all basically overhead. And the syndicate themselves, I'd say, are definitely all about cutting overhead. Oh, sure, yeah. These, these guys are not going to have the, the latest plasma rifles and body armor and this, that, and the other. They'll be cobbling together whatever they can with their own abilities and meager, meager, meager budgets. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be a very street-level campaign, you know. You'll, you'll, you'll have the unlicensed particle accelerator on your back to take out <laughs> that... Uh, that that uh, wraith over there in the corner. Yeah, absolutely. Or you run into a situation, you know, you got your plasma pistol, but you forgot the rope. Never forget the rope. No, definitely 20 not. feet. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of our basic ideas for, for how the uh, Void Engineers can be, can be portrayed. Um, and I think these ideas could work in addition to those uh, put into the convention book itself. You know, it's not one or the other. Um, you could definitely have just a, a small militarized segment of the uh, Void Engineers existing now, um, which I, I could see being being kind of a cool idea. Um, but, you know, I just, I feel that there should be these other ideas, other kind of interesting, you know, scientific research aspects to them, and then also just kind of the more street-level maintenance that we were just discussing. Um, so, I don't know, Jake, do you have any other further ideas about the Void Engineers? Any kind of, like... Uh, you know, you know, big concepts and or ideological points that you'd like to share. That's everything that I wanted to say. So, I mean, there we go. Uh, Chris, Chris, what do you think about all this? Obviously, I've not read the book. I've, I've not had time to. But um, uh, yeah, I think I think compared to the other conventions, I think they really. I would have thought the focus of this book would have been kind of similar to the way the progenitor book went with kind of a kind of you know the action scientists set on earth and i'd say kind of like you can imagine the the street level group um while they're considered superfluous and you know just doing cleanup could make uh you know amazing discoveries because again they come across some entity or some phenomena that's not been seen before, maybe because the Avatar storm has been and, and gone by. Um, so they could be an overlooked faction in that sense. It'd be interesting to to, to really ex- see, or I don't know, maybe, I mean, the militarized Void Engineers, I think I think it would be better to be portrayed as kind of like doing a last, uh, kind of a last-ditched defense because they need to do it in order to, to prepare to regrow the convention so they can go back out and make discoveries. So I think there's a lot of interplay with the idea that you've got a clean, the kind of a cleanup group, the group that's doing military defense and, and preparation, even though they really want to go off and you know, travel to Saturn and kill dream speakers on the surface of whatever moon there. Um, and maybe there is a group of void engineers that are all kind of like just to do with um, you know satellites and and uh, and telescopes and and you know 
particle accelerators doing you know more earth-based research and and kind of pushing the thing that you don't have to go away off into the stars to make you know big discoveries so if the convention book doesn't have that kind of isn't as broad as that and is a bit too focused on the militarized void engineers with plasma rifles and and power armor and stuff that's kind of a bit lame yeah that's what uh that's what i thought too yeah yeah it definitely mentions these other factions like there is a mention of like a deep sea faction in the void engineers mm. convention book but it's one little tiny paragraph and that sort of thing so you know it kind of mentioned that there's these other other groups um but yeah it's mostly focused on the uh elite space marines so yeah there we go um that's definitely some like additional ideas that you can use for uh you know void engineers and that sort of thing uh, i think they're pretty cool um i would definitely love to play kind of a, a cleaners game um i'm not sure if they'd actually be mages though they might be more of the uh, enlightened individuals and that sort of thing um as opposed to the actual you know sphere wielding mages themselves but uh yeah definitely some uh some cool stuff so i think with that uh we've fully covered the Void Engineers themselves, and let's move on over to the Secret Frequency. It's under the stairs. <laughs> oh, see. I want my Okay, so for the Secret Frequency, this show, um, sorry I found, uh, as I was trawling Google+, Plus um, because, uh, a really good... I think we need to give full credit to the um, suppressed transmissions uh, Google Plus community for some always seems to have good ideas, uh, good stories and Fortean type stories pop up and that's where I saw this one. So this concerns uh, the hypothesis of phantom time. So this is the idea. Dr. Hans Ulrich uh, Nimitz introduces paper of the phantom time hypothesis and this is the idea that there is a that hundreds of years ago, our calendar was uh, polluted, corrupted, modified, whatever, and that there is 297 years that are unaccounted for. So, in other words, we suddenly jumped forward in time. By that, we didn't physically jump forward in time; just the way it's been recorded has changed. So, this means that while we may think it's a the year 2005 for example it's actually the year 1708 and of course this hypothesis is uh, apparently not just the indulgence of crackpots and is based in real kind of you know historical evidence so the hypothesis suggests that in the early middle ages so this is uh, 614 to 911 AD uh, that uh, that that period never happened and uh, they were at the, that time period was added in as a due to a misrepresentation of documents uh, a change in the calendar used and even a falsification of, of documents so this means there are many artifacts and documents that are attributed to this time period and actually they come from different time periods that straddle that that made up time period so they, they actually date before then or technically by our incorrect calendar date after then when actually they occur 
around that point where those extra years are kind of injected, inflate our, in cal our calendar. So this means like, for example, uh, Charlemagne, who's a, you know, a, a king in Europe, was actually a fictional character. Um, apparently, this isn't just some crazy idea though. So there are, there are historians that are apparently played by a, uh, numerous falsified documents that date from the Middle Ages. So, and this was apparently a, a subject of an archaeological conference in, in uh, München in Germany in 1986, where uh, in his lecture, Horst uh, Fuhrmann, who is president of the uh, German Historical Society, he uh, described how the, that the Roman Catholic Church during the Middle Ages went about fabricating documents uh, before certain great moments occurred. So either this means that they had some amazing foresight or they made up the documents to support events that never occurred. And thus, you know, they could say, well, this year, this occurred in this year when th that entire time period never existed. So this is what, you know, uh, roused some uh, the curios curiosity of other researchers. And this leads to the idea that this uh, this issue of missing time is due to the origin of the Gregorian calendar that we use today. So the Gregorian calendar, if you go back, was uh, was established in 1582 by Pope Gregory the Thirteenth to replace the outdated Julian calendar, which had been used since the 45 BC. So the issue is that the Julian year has 10.8 is 10.8 minutes too long and by Herbert Her, uh, math, uh there would be a discrepancy uh, in the amount of time that's, that had actually passed compared to the actual number of solar years that had passed and so there'd be you would slowly accrue a, a 13 year discrepancy when actually there's actually only a 10 day error so this changes how you count the number of years and that, you know, if you assume that it's to do with how you count years, it's, uh, it gets a bit more complicated. But the, the end point is that they assumed that with this 10-day error, um, you know, that 10-day error would only accrue over 1,257 years, but actually it meant uh, 1,627 years had passed because there's a difference in, in the number of days that pass. So there's this missing kind of counting of years that have to be established. So apparently there is evidence for this for this. They went looking for evidence of their 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 hypothesis. So apparently there's a gap uh, in time uh, which uh, relates to the building of Constantinople in the year 558 AD to 908 AD. Uh, a gap in the doctrine of faith and the evolution of the theory of meaning of purgatory um, and so forth and so forth. So they found some examples where the, the, they believe there are examples which support their hypothesis of this missing 297 years. This is quite an outland outlandish uh, and extraordinary uh, hypothesis. Essentially it means that you know, we're, we're in the wrong year. You know, it's not the year 2014, you know, you have to minus 297 off there because of just poor mathematics being involved in in the accounting of things. Or it was done on purpose uh, to establish facts or to establish events 
to support some some uh, secret agenda of some political religious faction. So, guys, what do you make of this? Well, you know, this whole discrepancy in how uh, the Julian to Gregorian calculation is done, uh, you know, converting from one to the other, you know, brings up some interesting ideas and, and questions about time travel in general, you know, with exactly how it's how it's calculated. And we know that in the World of Darkness, um, at least off the top of my head, there's a time sphere in, uh, in Mage, and there's also a Temporis for uh, the uh, True Bruja. So, you know, you kind of have to wonder, uh, when these guys are saying, I want to time travel to X and X, you know, so-and-so date, um, how do they really do that? How do they really figure it out? Um, definitely, you know, kind of bears some discussion uh, before you really kind of jump into that uh, in your game. Because it would be pretty hilarious if you uh, jumped to the wrong date and had a little uh, hmm. back to the future kind of situation. Well, yeah, that, that's quite good because, as I said in the in the article, that actual, you know, historians have to be careful when they date certain things because they actually have to check when an event is the date of events uh, against different documents depending upon which calendar they use or, or referencing to other dates which they actually have you know the date in the Gregorian calendar and so if a group of time travelers haven't taken that into account they could time travel back saying they wanted to go kill some historical figure or some person they've got to hunt down in the past and find that that person's not been born yet or has already died and could could potentially uh, either you could have a whole thing where they misinterpret this to, to mean that that uh, this person never existed and that there's that but it's actually just them misinterpreting the evidence that's actually there because they've just gone to the wrong time it's not that the person didn't exist they're just not there when they they've gone to the wrong time period and so the person of course isn't there so you can really do some fun with that absolutely another cool idea is that you know looking at this article it seems like the primary looking at um european and christian documents to uh to discover this 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 issue um not so much uh, documents outside, and we do know that at this time, of course, uh, in you know the Middle East and the uh, the Arab areas, they had their own calendar, very good about uh, keeping track of things. And you also have the uh, the Mayan calendar as another reference. So, what if these three hundred years only occurred in one region? What if they only occurred in mm. Europe? What would that do to some of the people, uh, say, traveling in and out of this area? Maybe they go in. Uh, and you know, in one one region, only ten years takes place, but in Europe, twenty years took place. When they come out, well, mm. they've changed quite a bit. This could provide oh. some very interesting ideas for you know, World of Darkness game dealing with um, uh, this sort of a time bubble and that sort of thing, which you know is an idea you sometimes see in um, in science fiction and that sort of thing. But you know, the exact reason for doing this. Could be could be pretty neat. Maybe they're making this sort of a time bubble, you know, accelerating time in one area so they can complete a ritual uh, more swiftly, which would normally take 50 years, but now it's only going to take an hour, that sort of thing. Uh, could be pretty neat. And then when the characters walk in, well, they have plenty of time to try to stop it. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking at the, the Wikipedia article for this actual... Um, for this uh, hypothesis, and obviously more into the basis of the hypothesis and arguments against it. And, you know, one of the key arguments against it is that 
the one thing which is very easy to use as a reference point are, uh, are astrological um, events because, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> those things don't change very quickly. And so they're very predictable and you can, you, you can work backwards and figure out when events occurred. So those are, are, fairly, um, are fairly good. And then there's some other uh, particular uh, things, you know, with, where uh, particular dates are, are given with respect to, like, the equinox or, uh, or to uh, particular solstice and so forth. Um, so those are all quite important. But you can, again, make use of that. Uh, I think with the missing time that you, again, when you said time bubbles, you could may, maybe work into that. The the need to have particular astrological events occur when you need them or to remain active for a longer period of time. So I'm thinking like, uh, for example, um, in Dark Ages Vampire with um, a particular solar eclipse. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you can make use of that kind of idea. Um, and of course, you know, these, all these kind of time bubbles or losses of time, uh, you know, entire time areas, uh, time periods not occurring, um, and that works very well, uh, with regard to say, for example, in Mage the Awakening, where there've been attempts to create, um, to create a new Atlantis or some other, you know, magical construct, whatever, and you know, it fails and it falls apart and it, you literally have to delete an entire region uh, of the world or an entire time period away to uh, to correct things. Um, the, also, the thing that could make dating uh, of uh, may be misleading on on the date of a time period or the date of or, or something is because magical items may may be far older or far newer than what say carbon dating returns. So, you, or, or the if it's made of wood, you know the ring patterns and all that kind of stuff. So, so you have all that element that that magic and so forth can can cause real anomalies in how you date things. And of course, other good examples of of I guess you could use the whole time anomaly as an example uh, of. Um, I mean, this could tie in really well with uh, the uh, is it the. The Lord of a Thousand Leaves, King of a Thousand the Leaves, Prince of a Thousand Leaves, I believe. Yeah, yeah from Mage of the Awakening, uh, Boston Unveiled, and so that's the idea of this. Uh, it's a it's a book that is not yet complete, and it's the idea that every time it's discovered, it's becoming more and more complete, and as it's been uh, as it's being revealed and being used by mages. Uh, it it unleashes um, entities and, and phenomena related to an uh, an alternate timeline, uh, an alternate Earth, and you know the idea is that when this book is finally, uh, when this book is complete, it'll reshape the world into this alternate world. Um, actually, quite interesting. The book of uh, the the Prince of Thousand Leaves and his uh, and that that idea of this alternate time period is also very similar to. The idea that of um, can't name can't remember the name of the book, but it's an idea they use in Exalted, where there's this book which everyone thinks is correct, but actually, as you go forward in time, the book is becoming uh, is it only becomes more and more complete as more people work on it over time. Um, 
so yeah, time travel and things, you can do some very interesting, you can do some clever things with, um, and with artifacts that defy when you think they should be made due to temporal anomalies. Um, a good example of an idea of a temporal anomaly is in the Hyperion Cantos and the Time Tombs, where there are these tombs on this world which def- which seem to be in a state of of of, uh, of in some form of entropy field, and you know they 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 they're actually they're actually tombs from the far future sent into the past, and as they catch up with the the, the time period they're from again, the tombs will once more be filled with the beings that were buried there for whatever purpose. Oh, and also there's all this time stuff fits in really well with Demon of Descent. So in uh, Demon Descent, the, the core setting, the default city setting you're given is Seattle, and that has uh, different shards of time existing at the same, together. And the demons can move between, can move between these time periods, and these time periods a lot. So you may go to 1974 Seattle, and it doesn't know that the other parts, the other, the rest of the world exists in the year 2014. If you try to leave that Seattle, you'll just return to that Seattle. So there's no way to leave it. But they are, but all those different time shots are inter- interrelated. So you could go back to one in the past and start creating a cover, or start creating, um, doing things which you can then take advantage for in the present. And of course, the God Machine freaking hates all this, and you know it's it's all one big mess up that it's trying to correct because it's just pure chaos. Um, yeah, I like it. I like it. Chig, hit me with the uh, the changeling explanation. I got nothing for changeling, actually. Um, I'm trying to figure out why somebody would do this in the first place. Why they would hide three centuries or erase three centuries or what have you and the best idea that i can come up with for the old world of darkness given the connections to the uh the church and the calendar and all that is uh prester john i'm not familiar with him who is prester john Mm. uh well prester john is not a world of darkness figure it's a real world myth or figure or something Uh. of that nature um, he was a uh, ruler of a, a Christian kingdom in uh, Africa in the, the 4th century. So that kind of ties in with the, uh, the timeline here, unless I'm completely missing that as well. Uh, yeah, it's a little off, but we'll, we'll, we'll fudge it. So the, the idea here is that uh, when explorers from... Europe and Christendom were uh, traveling to Africa and to Central Asia and all that. Uh, they came across. They were they were bringing you know the word of God with them, and they came to a a legendary kingdom of Prester John, uh, where hey, turns out they were already Christian. They already knew all this stuff, so there was no need for them to to spread their Christian love and conversion there. So. Clearly, since this is a, a major paradox, uh, time itself came and erased the uh, the centuries where his kingdom existed. Hmm. Intriguing, intriguing. 
Well, is that it for the secret frequency? I think you know time periods and lost time and time travel is is uh, is an interesting kind of plot uh, kind of basis for a plot. Um, it's interesting when you've got characters like vampires, which obviously can exist for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and you know you could actually have a vampire who actually was there and goes no that did actually happen so i don't know why you think (laughs) it didn't happen or you know is in on the whole thing and doesn't reveal that you know this entire time period is just made up um maybe he slept through it which makes it really complicated um (laughs) yeah um the other thing is obviously you get into the interesting thing of say with Geist the Sin Eaters is maybe this time there's no evidence for this time period. Maybe it never did occur, but or it was deleted from from reality somehow. And yet in the underworld there are uh, you know the undead remnants reflections of this time period that never existed uh, and of these people that never lived. And that in itself then creates interesting paradoxes. Um, so yeah that's pretty cool yep absolutely all right i think that's it for the secret frequency so let's move on over to the new world of darkness world of darkness 2.0 all right chris uh we've had two pretty huge releases for the new world of darkness both blood and smoke and demon the descent and you've taken it upon (laughs) yourself to uh thoroughly read and review these so um i don't know what do you want to talk about Let's start with Blood and Smoke because I think it's maybe the easy one to first of all address. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Blood and Smoke is essentially a second edition Vampire the Requiem. And I'll, uh, I'll, first of all, I'm going to bring up my, my, my only criticism with the book straight away, which is I'm not a fan of the layout in some places. I find it a bit confusing with where they go from like, where they have section breaks uh with their you know with their double columns and so forth oh so yes i did notice that a very hard to follow uh by eye um so that's my main critique there otherwise i think it's pretty much now you know I, you know i always yeah i can't say I hate vampire the mass rate because you know i started off with it like however many years back when Revised came out. Yeah, that's what I picked up back in 1996, 7, 8, whatever year. Anyway, and, you know, I've played plenty of Dark Ages, well, Vampire the Dark Ages, and love it for that. And Requiem, we've always said Requiem, Requiem always had a hard job because after the reboot, I wouldn't say reboot. Reboot's a bit fair, unfair to it. I would say remix. Um, because it really pared down the vampire game to deliver an exp- try to deliver an experience which is really about being a vampire and living as a vampire and dealing with those things rather than getting too lost in heady, massive you know, art, plot arts and things which really means that you lose focus of the things that, that give you the horror of being a vampire. And you know, as the books came out, some of them weren't great, some of them were a bit dry, but they they brought out a whole slew of books which were all really optional and built up the setting. 
And I would say Blood and Smoke really grabs from all of those books and and is able to boil it down into what is quite a fun read and delivers a a vampire game that is now I think is is pretty it's pretty much pretty separate from Masquerade now. Extremely it's, it's extremely different. Yeah. So um Mike, I guess we should go through like what the, the biggest differences are now between this and Requiem and what really push it even further away from Masquerade. Um Yeah. So shall we start with the clans? What they how they've updated the clans? Uh yeah, yeah, go right ahead. Okay, so first of all this book kind of jumps straight into it. There's no it doesn't waste pages and pages on trying to labour what the game is about. It pretty much just go, here are the clans. And it really gets you into into what they are and into the covenants. Um the biggest changes for the clans is the is is revising um the their descriptions to be a bit more evocative. Um I would say compared to reading Guild Halls of the Deathless before this book, this one was far more fun to read. Um, the the main update for the clans, though, is obviously going to be in some of the disciplines, but also in their, their clan curse, which is now called a bane. Um, they're, they're just far better. I think the, the biggest change people will note is maybe the Gangrel uh, bane is a lot more playable. Because the old one was basically made them essentially stupid. You know, you didn't get your intelligence bonus on certain things, or you, it was docked. Whereas now, um, these these banes, I think, are far more interesting. And obviously, working with with conditions and so forth, um, and that gives you the first hint of how things have been changed because they've they've brought over something from Changeling: The Lost, which is the idea of Banes. So in Changing Loss, you had Banes and. I'm trying to think of the other thing. Banes and. Uh, contracts? Something else. Oh. No, it was the thing that as your character got more powerful and weird, they had weaknesses manifest. And that's essentially what this is is you get Banes manifesting uh, due to your. Relating to your blood potency to a certain extent, and also to your humanity. Um, so I think the curses, the, the the these banes is the first update. The other thing they've really brought in and kind of brought back to a certain extent. They were introduced in Dance Macabre, weren't they, Mike? The uh, mask and dirge. Yes, sir. Yep. And again, they're just a great guideline on to. I say guideline. It works into this whole thing that they're now nudge systems. I mean, God Machine Chronicle introduces conditions and tilts, and those are essentially nudges on how to, to, to push you into playing and push you into playing to lose. And again, Mask and Dirge supports that kind of nudge system. So again, your mask is how you present yourself to the world and to humanity, and Dirge is, is how, you, how you live your undead life and what it means to you. Um, so again, it's kind of it's kind of like nature and demeanor from old world darkness, but I don't think it's as as say limited. Well, I'd actually say that um, you know, mask and dirge is probably more defined in some ways because your mask is what kind of your role playing aspect as your 
dealing with the mortal world and then the dirges when you're dealing with the undead world so you kind of have guidelines in those two basic situations as opposed to nature and demeanor where am i supposed to be using my demeanor all the time do i kind of just mm. have my nature spritzel in that sort of thing um those were pretty vague in, in a lot of ways and it was it was difficult uh, i feel to really just from glancing at those two aspects figure out how you're supposed to play your character that was usually defined mm. by your character's actual background and that kind of further write-up. Yeah. Um, the other thing, of course, they've introduced, is, and I think we're going to see this kind of concept uh, returning in other in in the other uh, World of Darkness splats they turn up. We also have touchstones. So a touchstone essentially is a person, place, or thing that uh, ties your vampire uh, to humanity so if the more you interact and make use of your touchstones it, it enables you to kind of conserve and grow your humanity so again this is really important to, to, to labor is that humanity is not is now not about how good a person you are it is not the same as as uh, as as the old morality systems humanity is about how well does a vampire present themselves as human? So you can be an evil son of a bitch, but have high humanity because you conduct yourself in a manner that means humans don't realize that you are a blood-drinking monster. So obviously that, that also relates, because I mean, it's at this point, because you know, Mike, we played through a God Machine Chronicles game. We did that hangar mm -hmm. game, and again, morality system there was so different because it's it's a it's a post traumatic stress reaction to to either you doing horrible things or witnessing horrible things, and so again, this this is a, a, a post traumatic stress for a vampire when you do things or witness things that it that it it, it it's it's a uh, it's revealing to the vampire and reminding the vampire that they're not human and how they cope with that. Yeah, precisely. I think that's this is where we're getting into the huge difference between Masquerade and Requiem. You know, just at a glance, they're both games about vampires dealing with humanity, but they're dealing with it in a very, very different way in each game. You know, Vampire the Masquerade has that sort of Victorian ideals and that uh, kind of ideas of almost sainthood if you have uh, uh, Humanity 10. As opposed to this, where, mm. uh, as it says in the books, you, if you're Humanity 10, you're just a very, very good character actor. <laughs> and a lot of the, uh, you know, the issues, uh, the breaking points, are dealing with um, things that remind you that you're not human. And that's how it can be hard to uh, sort of keep up that, that cover, almost. Um, you know, at, uh, at Humanity 9, if you just see humans eating food, that reminds you that you're no longer mortal. You don't need that sort of thing. Um, and that Humanity 7, if you spend a week without human contact, you begin to realize slowly that you're no longer human. And I would actually, uh, there's a bunch of uh, breaking points where it, it's a breaking point if you don't have human contact for an extended period of time. And I would actually play those fairly mm. loose. You know, I wouldn't just have like the, the straight up timer, that sort of thing. It'd be more like um, yeah, if you've been uh, trapped in, let's say, an undead 
council meeting of some sort. Perhaps you're uh, exploring some some old uh, ruins uh, of of Rome, let's say, uh, for weeks on end, dealing only in kindred lore. Because if you're, you know, even if vampires just watching TV or something like that, they could still um, kind of keep up that sort of mortal, uh, uh, almost training or practice. But I think it's really just being completely cut off is really when you should use those. Yeah, but that's important because like, that relates then to touchstones because a touchstone doesn't have to be a person or a place. It can be a thing. So it could be your interest in a... Oh, maybe just an interest in the longevity of your favorite soap opera. Mm-hmm. And of course, watching a soap opera is a very human thing. So it's things like that. And I think that's really important because um, this comes back to something which, uh, in my own Vampire Requiem game, um, so uh, Sam's character, she she plays a Deva who, who obviously, you know, spikes... Um, the drinks of of patrons at his club so it makes it easier to feed and so forth but the argument was that the wonderful argument she came up with back this is like ages before any of this has come out right is that her character indulging in the use of drugs in a certain extent makes her character more human than vampires that don't do anything like that mm-hmm. and so again that's kind of it's this reinforcement of being more human, not whether you're a good person. Drug use and spiking people's drinks and so forth is a is a really horrible thing to do. But you know, it even humans do horrible things. So, yep, absolutely. And another cool thing, just uh, to cover the mechanics, when you lose humanity, mm-hmm. you have the option of gaining a bane and a beat, uh, which yes. means that you can kind of, you know, you can get uh, beats for more experience, but also add these extra banes and weaknesses to your vampire, which is uh, another kind of interesting uh, difference between Masquerade and uh, Blood and Smoke is that vampires are far, far less defined. Mm. There's a lot of ways to kind of customize or come up with uh, more unique uh, appearances and creations of vampires. Slightly off topic, there's uh, segments in the book discussing uh, revenants, which are... um, Kind yes. of ghouls turned into vampires, and I think there's some other caveats to them. Yeah. Also, there's uh, posthumous embraces, so which is very much like the yes. Mechat, because that was introduced in the Mechat clan book. Yes, precisely. So someone who's already dead being turned into a vampire. So there's all these different ways that uh, the kindred can be created, which is different than Masquerade, where there's really just the one straight-up embrace, um, and that kind of gives you a lot more play options and and makes them as I said before, uncertain. There's more mystery about them. Yeah, I would say with the with the Banes, uh, this comes back to the thing of like how we've always said that each World of Darkness game has uh, has you can you can tell you can kind of define a World of Darkness game on what it's trying to say about how a person's soul is being corrupted. And that's the cool thing about Banes is that you as a player have a customization element in how you want to represent your your vampires curse and how it reflects the corruption of their soul and I think that's really cool to play with because you can then see getting particular banes like yeah that really fits with how much of a bastard I am now other things we can pick up on uh, there's been within the mechanics I would say uh, again before even getting to disciplines or any of that stuff we've now got um 
they've changed how vampires are affected by injuries now. So before there was a difference between being shot by a gun and being stabbed or having a knife in you. They've they've basically made vampires a lot more resilient, I would say, mm-hmm. and a lot more capable of taking on people en masse. So essentially you, you feel a bit more like a monster. I mean, you're not going to be anything compared to a werewolf still. And we can just say the things that Stu's put, Stu Wilson's put out on werewolves that makes them horrifically scary. But, um, but yeah, again, the, the, the core mechanics of vampires have been improved. So we've also got more rules on, like, vampires tasting blood. There's more stuff to do with that. Vampires now have an element of night sight. They can, and depending upon their blood potency, can, can, are more able to, to uh, distinguish between different blood uh, you know, blood samples, whatever, uh, and distinguish the connections between different blood samples so they can tell who sired who and so forth. Um, they can also sm- they have a greater ability to smell and hear heartbeats of, of people and, and, think, and all those things like that, which you, know, you always see in, in vampire media, you know, where they, you, you suddenly the vampire's vision changes they can see all the veins in someone they they or they really focus in on on someone's pulsing vein and they can hear that person's heartbeat so to have all that now within requiem i think really may, again reinforces the the animalistic element of of these hunters there's also some modifications on how you uh, your predatory aura so that's now more of a thing and that it doesn't just happen on the first meeting between kindred, I never used it that way. I always had it when kindred met when they weren't expecting uh, to meet, because it represents that territorial nature of the of these monsters. And how you have it manifest means that you can have the beast manifest as a monster, or as being seductive, or as being a, a competitor. And so these these work with uh, different conditions and how vampires interact with each other, or uh, how um, how they go about hunting you when you make a feeding roll. Um, anything else you want to say, Mike, that you've spotted in the early rules there? I know you said about revenants there. No. Oh, the kiss. They've updated the kiss. So obviously, uh, the kiss has has more an effect of a, of an effect on mortals now. So there's, it, uh, I think that they've put more work into the fact that. Uh, so you've now got the the swooning condition, and uh, and there's more of a supernatural element to how vampires are able to essentially brainwash people into wanting to be to be fed upon, or uh, or they want to be fed upon over time. They've also added in how blood potency affects the amount of damage, not only the amount of damage, but the type of damage you're taking from sunlight. So I think there's a certain interplay between your blood potency. And your humanity on how you're able to day walk or how long you sleep. So again, um, there are certain definite advantages uh, to be had uh, with various combinations of of your attributes. Um, obviously, they've elaborated more on blood sympathy and detecting uh, uh, connections between people, um, and more on uh, blood addiction. Um, and blood bonds. Uh, is there anything else I can say on that? I think that's the core of it there. 
Um, so I would say the, you know, a core vampire before you get to the disciplines, I think, is, is far more interesting now and quite distinct from what you play in Masquerade, where you're only, you've only got a few, few things which really point you out as being a vampire. Now there's quite a lot of things that can point you, you know, show how, how vampiric you are. Um, again, are these are you can the thing is we've also said in um, in God Machine Chronicles the breaking points can be defined by as a as a conversation between the player and the storyteller. So you can add breaking points on here to uh, uh, to further define how you view your your vampire's requiem. Because Mike, you know when you said about the banes and how you gain a yep. bane, you can gain a bane. Did you say that you can also gain a bane to ignore the breaking point in future? Um, I don't remember if that was a rule, but that's how it that works. Sounds like an awesome one. So even if it isn't, go with it. You can. So if there's a bane that you think you're getting tired of it, yeah, no, sorry, uh, uh, a breaking point, which you just like, I think my vampire's completely done with that. You can instead take on a bane and in future just ignore that breaking point. Hmm. Interesting. I think that's really yep. cool. Yep. <laughs> I think that's really cool. Sorry, go back to the change of thing. It's taboos. It's banes and taboos. So, uh, yeah, that's what it is. Just because I'm going through the book in order, um, the they've brought a lot of stuff from the Covenant books into the core book. So we now have a lot of uh, uh, Carthian uh, merits to represent Carthian law. So that's now better defined, I feel. Um, it's more playable. And again, you know, you've got numerous other uh, things. They've also really pushed forward the fact that there are certain merits that allow vampires to, to claim uh, dual membership between different covenants. And so when you look at the list of how you can set up in, the, in you know, what is the society of vampires like, they've put a bit more work in defining other societies other than the typical masquerade-like feudal setups. They've defined, they've given a bit of description there. So, um, yeah, the merits are, are all fine. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff that have that's made it in and, and remained there. There's also a kindred dueling. So there's some fighting styles which are particular to kindred, which is all about you know making the right swipes at tendons and 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 uh, and, and arteries and so forth. So you do more damage, which I kind of like. That plays up for the Invictus. You can see see that being useful for settling disputes um and also riding the wave is a fighting style where your character gives themselves self over to the beast and they understand how to use it as a true weapon that is pretty scary uh so disciplines yeah disciplines all right they're uh they're a bit different um, um <laughs> definitely adjusted yeah. for the new mechanics uh especially the combat disciplines but uh i think the three that I found most interesting were probably animalism, uh, protein, Hell yes. and also actually celerity because yeah. it's back, but it's way better than it was Masquerade. Okay, start with celerity, and I think at this point we can talk about all the physical disciplines. Oh, sure, sure. They have a more active effect now, even if you don't invoke them directly using right, blood. Right, so... Uh, with Celerity, as you may remember in Vampire the Masquerade, it was a bit of a nightmare where uh, spending a bunch of blood points, mm. you would get all these additional actions. Uh, it would really slow down combat, and typically everyone pretty much wanted it um, if they were going to be doing a lot of fighting, that sort of thing. So with the new Requiem Celerity, new Blood and Smoke one, 
there's, I believe, just three effects, and you can spend one blood point to activate one of those, or multiple blood points to uh, activate some of them simultaneously. Those three effects are basically, uh, you know, moving up in the initiative order, um, increasing, like doubling or quadrupling your your actual movement speed, so you can move very fast, and then also yeah. uh, taking in the middle of someone else's action, you can spend a blood point to take a you know very quick action uh, against them. So, for example, if uh, you know some guy's pulling out a gun to uh, shoot your vampire. You can just spend a blood point to quickly slap it out of his hand, which is definitely pretty neat. That's very gun foo. Exactly. You can do with with vampires. So unless you take these, uh, you know, quick actions um, and have these other effects, such as moving up in the initiative order, without you know bogging down the combat with all of these extra uh, actions and that sort of thing, it's just a quick thing where you just kind of interrupt and say, "Oh, I slapped it out of his hand," which definitely speed things up overall compared to the old system. And then Does the it... persistent effect is that you get the celerity dots as bonus to your defense right. yep, yep. or your dodge rolls, and that applies for firearm attacks. Uh, and that means also, because the way New World of Darkness works is that you don't get your defense against uh, uh, ranged attacks, like if it's with firearms anyway. Uh, arrows is another thing. But um, it means then you always get your celerity dots to dodge gunfire. Which is great. Uh, it's great when they're trying to uh, shoot you with a wooden arrow. It's even better if they're shooting... Yeah, especially if they're shooting you with a... Does that... Do you get your defense against a crossbow? Because it's a slower... I don't think you do. But that's, they, they changed no, that No, I don't think you do. Bit, um, because you know, they had that yeah. rule in there in, in Requiem originally, but oh. it was pretty much impossible to stake someone with a crossbow. Yeah, because you had to hit... And then deal three, because the way the damage? dice mechanic worked, it meant you had to deal at least oh, five, five damage, yeah. I think, to to do the heart. And of course, it was a it was hard to hit because you you were doing a cold shot, yeah. which had like a minus three because it was a small part of the body. But that then works into how they've changed. But that's now fine because I, I haven't looked. I can't remember off the top of my head how staking a vampire works now. But it's a lot easier because, of course, the way they've done weapon damage is so different now in that a weapon's bonus damage is added on to your success on your dice yep. roll after yep. you've rolled to attack. So it all works out that it's just, it makes more sense. Um, animalism, yeah, animalism was always kind of a... Uh, it, it was always a weird one because also the Ventru had it. And now, now it's... It, it really represents that command of animals and also the command of the animal aspect of humans. Mm -hmm. And so Feral Whispers is still there. Raise Familiar, I oh, like. Yeah. That, again, is kind of cool. Um, summon the Hunt, which is you just spill your blood on the ground and loads of animals come along and try to consume it and you now have a horde to use, uh, which is always fun. Uh Feral infection, which is you feel the arrow of your predatory aura, aura uh, infecting everyone around you with the with the ravings of your beast. Uh, so essentially, animals and even people go go mad. So that kind of fits in with the kind of element that the Ventru and Malkavians. You know, Malkavians are a bloodline of the Ventru in 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 uh, Requiem. So I kind of like that aspect of it. And then Lord of the Land, I think, is is 
is the uh, is the, the show winner out of the uh, update of animalism, which essentially means a vampire is able to mark its territory, um, and they then become mystically aware uh, if their territory is um, is infringed upon by other vampires. I think that's completely badass. Yeah, it's definitely a good one. I really like that one. Dominate is still Dominate. Yeah. And Majesty. Again, updates just to make them more thematically correct and I think a bit more. I think there's some some things that have changed. Again, just to further that push away from from Masquerade. Also, of course, with Dominate and with Majesty is far more use of the ideas of, of making use of condition cards. Uh, you will see that a lot in those powers. But that's good because it makes the bookkeeping really damned easy. And it also means then, as something we've always said, and this goes back to problems with Cthulhu Tech as well, mm-hmm. how much we hate mind control powers because you were, it's that idea that a player is being disempowered of, of the story. And so the condition cards allows you to, to at least have, have some way of, as a player, if these powers are being used against you, to really gain some sort of... Uh, of uh, the role in the story that's being played out, even though technically your character is being mind controlled, you you get to have some nar- narrative control in there and get a bene- get a bonus at the end of it all that you can use in in something, whether it's a beat or or a new condition right, or something. Right, precisely, it retains player agency in a situation that would normally yes. remove player options. Nightmare is still awesome. <laughs> I'll never get fed up with Nightmare. Nightmare, yeah. Nightmare was always a good addition in Requiem. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, can I just uh, jump in here and just kind of bring up that uh, I don't like that they left in Auspex 5, which has been the same thing since Vampire the Masquerade, What's basically, where Twilight yeah, they, they, uh, a vampire can project into an astral form and um, kind of wander around. I've just never really found it too keeping in the uh, the theme of the game. I think it works better now with the touchstones because you could use it to go interact with the people who are your touchstones without physically being there. Huh. It's kind of like that going into their dreams, you know, how, how Dracula appears in the dreams of... Uh, of um, I can't think of a name. But, you know, that kind of thing where the person could think they're still dreaming but they're not. They're actually kind of in that half-awake state and they do see the person or they that they've infringed within their dream. I think it works for that kind of well. Okay, well, that's that's a good point. Um, I still just think it's it's a little bit of a strange ability, and I would, I hope they could like uh, uh, come up with something a bit more interesting for, for Auspects 5, but uh, no, that's definitely a, a huge benefit with the, uh, the new system uh, we just brought up. Hmm. Uh, Protean, then. Protean. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, pretty much just everything is better with it overall, and it, it the power makes a lot more sense than it used to. You know, in Vampire the Masquerade, Protean was, uh, you know, it was the list of disciplines and effects that uh, that Dracula had. You know, his powers kind of all just shoved into uh, one um, discipline chain. But now with this Protean, it's more about a vampire's ability to control its own body in various different mm. ways. So, of course, the first level power is... Um, not earth meld it's unmarked grave which allows them to meld with the earth and sink into it uh to perhaps you know sleep for the day but they've also made it a lot more clear now so that you can uh easily well not easily because it takes a lot of uh, vitae but um melds to concrete steel which gives you a lot more options than the uh 
previous, you know, just sleeping during the day. You know, you could hide and that sort of thing uh, wherever. You can still also feed uh, while you're in that form. So, you know, you're, if you're like an elder who's who's done this, you know, you can have you can have whoever just coming along and spilling the blood of some poor mortal on your unmarked grave. Yeah, that makes some pretty interesting uh, cult. Yeah. Predatory aspect has just been, I think, better defined in what you can, you know, what it does in in the fact that, you know, you gain whatever aspects of a beast and they've given a whole load of examples Mm -hmm. there. I think most of it's pretty much the same. They've just given more examples with those powers, and so it makes it better yeah, defined precisely, precisely. and uh, more interesting. Is there? Is there? They do something with claws. Uh, yeah, that's no. well. That's part of the uh, predatory aspect is that you can grow claws. So they kind of all wrap that together. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, horrid talons is for a natural aspect, which is they deal even more damage. But if they got, they've also got rid of them doing aggravated damage or anything like that. So. Yeah, that also couples with, I think, at the same time, it's just a bit of a rebalancing because everyone everyone wanted protein claws. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Um, nothing really to say about resilience or, or vigor. Obviously, there is a, a, a slew of devotions. And, of course, across all of the books that have ever been out, more and more devotions uh, got put into Vampire the, Masquerade, uh, Vampire the Requiem. So now... I would say we've got a a uh, a selection of kind of some of the best ones that have turned up. Um, I'm trying to think if there's if there's a particular one here that I really like off the top of my head. A selection, Vermin Flood. Yeah, again, some of these some of these even use like three disciplines uh, in order to invoke. Okay, Blood Sorcery is a good point to mark, to point out. So we had uh, a few months six months before this book came out um, the Blood Sorcery book for Vampire the Requiem came out so in some respects that book is invalidated with regard to the exact rules on how things work but as has been said the way that Blood Sorcery works in this book is it's built on top of the ideas that appeared in that book so if you want to do the the creative thaumaturgy uh, as presented in in, uh, in uh, Sacraments and Blasphemies then um is that right, or is it Blasphemies and Sacraments? It's Blood Sorcery, B and S, yeah. So the Blood Sorcery within Blood and Smoke is built on top of the ideas that were there, so it still essentially is the same thing. So you can port things over fairly easily. Um, and actually, there's a sidebar that exactly says that um, for inventing new rituals, so uh, there. Uh, the cool thing is, of course, Mysteries of the Dragon. So the one thing is that the Order of Dracul have this whole kind of Victorian scientist element to them. And that's really wicked. I really like that. But you never, there was never really anything to support trying to be inventive with the, the way you're modifying your, your vampiric form. And so not only do we now have the cause of the dragon, we have the scales. And so the scales represent attempts to, to, to create new coils. So a scale is a scale is kind of like is the prototyping stage of a new coil, and I think that's just a really cool new aspect to um, the Ordo Dracul and really, really hits upon what they are, which is a philosophical, scientific philosophical movement. While you've got the two religious groups, two religious covenants, and you've got the two political covenants. 
Anything else to say on those, Mike? Or... Uh, nope. Of course, within um, the descriptions of the talking to about the uh, clans, they also give um, quick sections on three clans that don't exist anymore, one of which is the Julii, which goes back to Requiem uh, for Rome, and then there's two other ones. Uh, also, in the clan section, you have a, descript- a, page, devote- a page or so devoted to uh, the group known as Seven, and again, some quick descriptions of some covenants which have, you know, uh, gone extinct. Uh, so again, they're, they're, they're really trying to represent that. What we get within the core book is the main top slice of the world of Vampire the Requiem, and there are other covenants, there are other clans, and there are multiple bloodlines, and that we're just getting the tip of the iceberg. Um, so yeah, and then obviously it goes on to the rules, blah, 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 blah. Blah, there's loads of conditions, and then the final main section covers the Strix and is really presenting them as uh, as a core type of antagonist to add into your Vampire the Requiem game. So, Mike, how do you feel about this prominence of the Strix now within the Requiem setting? Well, as we know from Twin Peaks, the owls are not what they seem. And I haven't really read the section, so I mean, uh, sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think um, I would say what the Strix represents is that kind of. They've always been, you know, the, this. As much as the vampires can play their games and plan for centuries and play out their little games, the Strix are the jokers of of. The setting, you know, they're going to turn your plans upside down, and they're going to gather and watch all the vampires screw up. Um, they are obviously spirits, but they, but they're, they're also kind of not spirits. So there's an element of you know how much you want to cross over with um, the spirit rules out of, um, say, werewolf, and uh, and so forth. Um, otherwise, you know, I. I think they're a great type of antagonist. I think they're they're uh, kind of that wild card you can introduce, and they really add that extra level of distrust. As you see, say, as you have this whole section, they give an, uh, an example of say a vampire watching uh, video footage of themselves meeting with other people who they don't know, and that's all this whole idea that the Strix are able to possess vampires and and even daywalk when they've possessed the vampire's body. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of scary elements that uh, adds in, uh, that element of, of the unknown. And I think that's what the Strix represents. It represents this thing that's very close to vampires, that is vampiric in its nature, but is an, it is an unknown in their world. And we like that element of New World Darkness. We don't like having things well-defined. We like that that element of mystery so yeah um what would you say then mike in the end what's your impression of blood and smoke overall then uh definitely pretty positive um i was looking at it more for you know the mechanics and all that so uh i would still say that uh you know for running vampire the masquerade this might be no this definitely is a better system uh overall you know there's definitely differences in how humanity is treated and all that but uh if you just wanted to use this rule set for Vampire the Masquerade, I, I think it'd be okay. Mm. 
with the uh, you know conversion document, the uh, translation guide that was done previously, um, it wouldn't be too too difficult to uh, convert over a lot of the powers from uh, Masquerade into Requiem. So uh, definitely uh, a plus in that regard. But you know, I think we should probably ask Chig. Um, Chig, what's your overall rating from what you've heard? Is it totes legit? It sounds like it may very well be totes magoo. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> you heard it right here, folks. That's uh, probably the highest rating he's ever given anything on this show. Probably so. Chris, do we want to uh, talk about Demon a little bit real quick? Yeah, I think it'd be nice to have more time to talk about on the next show, actually, to, to devote more time to it, because this is, again, a really long episode of yeah. Darker Days. Um, what to say? Straight up. Demon of the Descent, having read through it, is is an interesting uh, game to read through. Uh, I know there was a lot of concern with the types of um, the types of demons you can play. You know, when they fall into these different classes of of psychopomp uh, in, uh, and uh, what was the one? There was an integrator and all that, and and how all these play off. But once you've read through Demon of the Descent, it makes sense of what you you can play. And it's yeah, it's it's just nothing like Demon the Fallen, that's for sure. Nope. Um, it's it's far more um, it, it's far more. Well, it's just a completely different game. Again, when you're looking at Demon of the Fallen, you've got this sort of uh, rebuilding your your society and culture and preparing for the the, uh, the last days, as opposed to Demon the Descent, which has this uh, entire conceit, sort of a, a spy drama almost. You know, you don't know who you can trust. You're being hunted constantly, and you have to do whatever you can to maintain your cover, uh, while also, in some cases, uh, fighting back against this uh, entity that created you. Yeah. So it's almost, you know, it's Jason Bourne, the World of Darkness awesome crossover. I think that's that's right, because obviously, as playing a demon, you are cut off from the god machine, and whether you want to integrate with the god, reintegrate even with the god machine, or, or whatever, all demons agree that they, they've still got to hide from the god machine, because it is looking for them. It does want them, and it wants to destroy them, whatever, or, or, or you know, recycle them. And the important thing is, even if and this is where integrators are an interesting one compared to the other groups of, of demons, is that integrators don't want to lose their sense of identity when they reintegrate with the god machine. So that's an important aspect, is that demons want to be their own person, but in order to be their own person, they've got to hide from the god machine. To do that, they have to take on covers and steal, you know, they have to make bargains with people to claim parts of their identity or steal people's identities wholly and destroy them and take their soul, essentially. So you want to be your own person, but you're stealing other people's identities. You're fashioning false covers from patch, as patchwork jobs from other people's identities so that you could hopefully either find what it, where your own hell exists, where you can find a world of your own away from the god machine, or you could find the perfect cover and exist in the world of darkness, or you could reintegrate with the god machine, but still be your own person. So, ultimately, Demon Descent is a Gnostic, is a tech Gnostic, as in, you know, it talks about the, the, seeing the glorious patterns of the world and the underlying meaning of them, is tech Gnostic espionage with the ultimate aim of finding yourself and 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 getting to to 
to be that person. So that while you could be learning all this, you know, all this mystical, the very mystical nature of the God machine and what it what its purpose is, that is all secondary, really, to the ultimate goal of of being your own person. You know, there's a lot of crossover with Mage. It even says in the book, like you could play a, an interesting chronicle with demon and mages working together, and that says a lot about a game when it's when it's straight up. He's quite happy to say this could be good crossover. Even as you do good crossover with vampire, where you're dealing with hidden societies, because again, both societies have things they want to hide from. Again, some of the powers just yeah. You know, we've been going through disciplines just now with vampire. Some of the powers for these demons are are uh, cosmic in their nature, and that's really fun and. <laughs> Yeah, there's just a lot to go through, and it'd be good to try and. I think when we when we maybe cover this on the next show is kind of talk about what our ideas for maybe what a a type of chronicle we would want to run, because that's again I think it's all good to re- all well and good to review a game, but unless you know how to what you would want to run from it, I think it's it's a hard sell. If yeah, you can give yeah. people an example of, I think this would be a good chronicle to play. Absolutely, and you know one of the things that Chig you always say is, you know, what, what do these guys do? What's the point of this? And there's actually a segment in Demon of the Descent, which I'll send over to you, which is just titled, What Do Demons Do? Now, I'm not going to take all of the credit for this being put in the book, but I'm pretty sure we can all agree that this was put in the book because I complained about it. I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're exactly right. <laughs> so there we go. All right, yeah, let's uh, let's talk about Demon a bit more next time. That'll give me uh, some time to brush up on the powers a little bit and the uh, and different mechanics, so that should be good. Yeah, and, um, and we can get to the nitty-gritty of ciphers. The other thing is um, I'm hoping, once I've looked at I'll download it, like, now, um, with the Necropolis book for Mummy the Curse, I might actually have an idea of how I would run Mummy because that's my problem with that game is I I really don't know what to do with it because of what mummies are. So, yep, yeah, yeah, there'll be uh, something else to talk about. Maybe we can make it a double feature, a creature double feature, how to play demon, how to play mummy. <laughs> I think that'd be a good one. I think well, we've said before we want to do that more as um, uh, Darklings is that kind of like show and tell, here's my idea for a chronicle for whatever oh, game. Um, but, you know, there's nothing stopping us doing that in the main show and just throwing ideas out there. Absolutely. Sounds good. So so I think that's it for the uh, the new World of Darkness. And then, uh, you know, for closing remarks, uh, we will have another contest coming up. Uh, still need to work out all the details about yeah. that, but there will be another one coming up pretty soon. Um and that's for another world of dark, new world of darkness books. I think we're going to have to do something for a classic world of darkness as well, aren't we, Chig? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Good. Good. We'll uh, we'll think about that in the uh, in the near future. So, where can people find us? Well, of course, they can send us an email over at darkerdaysradio at gmail dot com, or if you want to join us on Google Plus, you can go over to our community. Uh, it's always happening. We've had some interesting discussions lately, off the top of my head, about initiative and. Uh, there was that very extensive discussion about uh, Genius the Transgression, which we, we may yet cover in the future. So, definitely cool stuff. Uh, where else, Chris? Where are we? We're on Facebook. Uh, when yeah, we, we actually got some interaction with people on there recently. I've always said Facebook is a, kind of a 
seems to be a place of dying uh, social interaction. But yeah, no, we do post updates there. You can find us on on uh, Blogger. Um, so we do have a blog. I've not updated it recently, so I might put, throw up some pictures and. You know, there'll be updates again once I start running Iron Kingdoms again, and then hopefully after that uh, I might write something uh, about something that comes into my mind as I'm doing Fade and Sun's writing. We're on Twitter. I don't I don't update stuff there enough on Twitter. Maybe we need Chick to... Chick, we need to give you... Make sure you've got access to all these things so you can post updates as well, because it's it's really hard managing a lot of social media stuff when... You actually have like a day job and yeah. and stuff. Um, is there anything else we've got that people can connect um, to us by? I think we covered it. Tumblr? Yeah. Tumblr, uh, I try and update yeah. it when I can. Um, on its path, it's fairly yeah. active there. Uh, it's mainly a nice place to go to. Uh, if people do go on Tumblr, I think it's the best venue to go see uh, Samuel Arya's uh, artwork as it goes up and you know other people. Um, but, you know, there's gaming discussion that goes on in the world of Tumblr. Um, and I think yeah. that's it. Really. Hey, speaking of Sam, you know, there's some really sweet artwork uh, that's very similar to Sam's style in Necropolis DC, but it's actually not by him. It's by some other guy. I'll have to go find his name. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. But definitely good stuff in there. Oh, and um, and uh, I did actually post recently the Hannibal the Vigil uh, uh, blog post about how you can use... Uh, the TV series of yeah. Hannibal as inspiration for World of Darkness games. Um, yeah, people need to go watch that. Season 2 is drawing to close and it's been bloody awesome. It's been really amazing. Been good. I mean, it's a shame because it, its ratings aren't great, but it seems like whoever's in charge, the people at NBC don't give a damn. <laughs> and they've gone like, fine, have a Series 3 because it's uh, it's it's really good. Like, they... The um, uh, Brian Fuller's done some excellent work with uh, getting over the characterization of certain characters far better than they ever ever were in the novels. Um, so check it out. We might talk about it more at some point, or maybe I can get I can get Sam here to uh, write a review of season two and why people should watch it all, or why they shouldn't. <laughs> all right, good stuff. So, I think with that, uh, it's pretty much yeah. the end of the episode. Uh, next time, you know, we're back in the saddle, so I think we can do another episode pretty quickly. Um, maybe talking about a little changeling chig, because you've got, like, 50 pages of questions and answers to do. I've answered all those questions. I just need to, you know, we yeah. need to record it. All right, so perfect. perfect. Next time. And then uh, talking about, I guess, demon and mummy a little bit, and that should be good. Yeah. All right. So, that's it, folks, and uh, everyone, have a good night. Good night, everyone. Any better? Oh, way better. Yeah, I don't know. Something messy is happening. Oh, yeah, yeah. It is a lot better. Yeah, I have, okay. I have Comcast and... I don't know, our internet connection oh, sucks. Monopoly oh, internet no vision. Yeah, All I know is that you live in the in the land of milk and where they destroy the internet. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> essentially. <laughs>